Hey, how's it going tonight, Chi Alpha? Uh, if you do not know me, as you may have heard, my name is Hunter Johnson, and I am one of the staff pastors here at JMU Chi Alpha. Um, now, I wouldn't normally start my sermons off by talking about the weather, but I mean, we've got to, right? Because it has been crazy these past few days. Like, I was down in Roanoke um, for a bachelor party. Um, I'm the best man in a wedding coming up, which is really exciting, but it was also stressful just planning everything for that party. And everyone's like, yo, what are we doing? What are we doing? I'm like, I don't know what we're doing because it's calling for rain for two straight days. And so that's kind of tough. Um, and then, of course, the weekend got here, and it didn't rain, like, whatsoever. And I'm like, bro, we could have went hiking. We could have done this. But we got to do a lot of awesome uh, special things indoors, too, like bowling and an escape room. And that was really cool. Um, but, you know, I was talking with Julia because here we are in, like, the middle of November, right? And it's still been, like, 70 degrees out. And it's kind of a little sad, right? Like, until today. And then we're like, oh, okay, winter is actually coming. Because I, I made a joke the other night with Julia. I said, well, I guess uh, winter is not coming. And we're just going straight back into spring. And she kind of looked at me and was really upset because she loves the winter. Do I have any other winter fans here? Any other cold weather fans? Right. <laughs> Paul said make it colder, right? We're getting there. We're getting there. If you check the forecast, it is coming. We are going into the 40s and the 30s, and it's going to be great. Um, snow, uh, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Um, but if this week's upcoming weather isn't sign enough that winter and Christmas are coming, now we have Starbucks who are bringing back their Christmas and wintertime cups. So, uh, you know, a lot of y'all are excited about that. Um, What's that? Peppermint mocha. Yeah, I, I don't drink coffee, so it's like tough. But you know, the rest of you can enjoy that too. Um, hey, I'll, I'll do great in Salt Lake City. No coffee, no problem. Uh, anyway, you should still come. Uh, we'll get you your caffeine fix via Red Bull or some other way. Um, but anyways, um, it, maybe you knew this or not. We are under 50 days until Christmas. What? Yeah, it's 47 days until Christmas to be exact. Um, which is super exciting. Um, maybe you're as excited as I am for Christmas for multiple reasons, right? Some of you are excited to go home and spend time with your family and friends this uh, Christmas season. Some of you are just ready to take a break from the grind, like, am I right? Like some of you are like, well, uh, you know, Christmas is great, but just give me two weeks, uh, three weeks of no homework and we'll call it a day. Um, maybe, well, yeah, you know, it is reality versus you know what we expect but um but there are different reasons to be excited for christmas right um but be real with me for just one moment go back like 15 years ago 12 years ago there's a lot of different ages in this room think back to when you were a kid what were you most excited for when it was christmas time Wow, I was, that, that's a lot of different answers than I was expecting. Honestly, I thought it was going to be about the presents, right? Come on, be real with me, be real with me. How many of you were super excited for the presents? I see two hands in the back from Josh. Okay, there we go. Now we're honest, good. We, uh, we appreciate honesty here. Um, you know, it, this, is, this is an exciting thing. Like, I remember thinking about my Christmas list year after year and thinking, oh, like, what could I get? This is going to be an awesome Christmas season. Um, how many of you, quick poll, grew up believing in Santa? Stan I still 
Okay, okay, that's, uh, that's about what I expected. Most of you, but not all of you. I was just curious. Because honestly, as I have been thinking about one day being a parent, I've thought about not doing the whole Santa thing. Even though that's what I grew up with. Like, I don't know, I just think that there are, are valid reasons for it, right? Um, and my mom's like, I've told her this once with Julia, um, and my mom was like, no, that's not happening. Like, my grandchildren will believe in Santa, they're gonna get gifts from him, and you know, I'm not really worried about that, we'll figure it out when time gets there. Um, but, but I mean, just think about it for one second with me. First of all, there's that one song. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Um, and I mean, looking back, I did not plan on singing that when I wrote this, so uh, sorry about that. Uh, I mean, looking back on that now, that's a little frightening, to be honest, right? And the idea that Santa was always watching you, that made me a little uneasy. And then there's the rest of the song, which I'm going to read and not sing this time. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, right? Like how many times were you told if you wanted good gifts from Santa or if you didn't want coal, right? You had to be good yourself. And as a child, the math like seemed to check out. It seemed pretty straightforward. Okay, do good and receive good. Like, yeah, sure. But then as you grow up, and you start to realize that life doesn't really always work that way, right? And also another reason, like I don't want my children to have a workspace Christmas. Like I don't want them to know uh, or think that I simply give them good things because of what they do. Um, I want them to know that it's first and foremost out of my love for them and who they are, right? Because one of the things that uh, as I grew older and learned the truth about Santa, thanks to my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Johnson, um, and my mom was super, yeah, sixth grade, it was, okay, we, we, we had a, no, not, not my dad, no, different, uh, Todd Johnson, uh, he's probably not listening to this, but, you know, my mom was super upset about that, but, like, by then, we kind of we knew that something was up, right? Like, the tooth fairy was ruined for me one night when I woke up and I saw this big, hairy hand in my face in the middle of my sleep. It was my dad. He was putting money under the pillow, and I was on a bunk bed, so he had to, like, reach up, and I was like, oh, that was the moment that I realized my dad was a tooth fairy. Um, and that was just very different than what I expected. Um, but anyways, as I learned the truth about the tooth fairy, as I learned the truth about Santa, um, and learned that it was really my parents giving me all these gifts, it was really impactful. You know, as I thought about it, I was blown away by how costly their giving was. As these gifts didn't come from some jolly old man with a bunch of elves in a workshop who could just endlessly crank out all these things, but these things came from my parents who worked hard for these gifts. Um, and even as great as these gifts were, it made me even more grateful for the givers. Did you react this way when you found out too? Maybe you reacted differently. Maybe you were disappointed or, or frustrated. Maybe you just felt something else. You know, as I grew older, I also realized that there are many families around the world who either choose not to or are unable to celebrate Christmas with gifts because of, you know, valid reasons like finances and circumstances. But the same truth applies to them as it applies to those who did receive gifts, that the giver, or the ones that are giving the gifts, are more important than the gifts themselves, right? What really matters is being together. 
And so I say all of this to say that as we grow older, if you haven't already, we must realize that Christmas is not all about the gifts. Christmas, yes, is about the greatest gift of all in celebrating Jesus Christ and that, but it's also about the giver. And it's about cherishing the ones we love as we remember a God who cherishes us. Some of you are wondering, where in the world are you going with this, Hunter? And I'm glad you asked. The same is true for us when it comes to our relationship with God. God is gracious. He is loving, he's kind, and he's faithful. He has so many good things and gifts to offer us, but it is crucial for us, as we will see in this passage tonight, that we must cherish the giver, God, more than the gifts. We must understand this truth if we are to love God and to follow God in the ways that he calls all of us to with no strings attached. We must cherish the giver more than the gifts. And in this passage that we are gonna look at tonight as we continue in our series in the book of Genesis, which if you need a Bible, we have some on the back table and Josh would love to grab you one. Does anyone need a Bible? You can just slip up your hand and we will get you one. Okay, we all good? Cool. Thanks anyways, Josh. Um, so as we continue in our series of the book of Genesis, we are gonna look at a pivotal moment from the life of Abraham, where he will learn this truth for himself through the context of going through a very difficult trial and test. Would he pass the test or not? Well, let's find out. But before we turn to our text tonight, let me just give you a little bit of context, okay? Because context is key. So we have this man, Abraham, who has been called by God to leave his home at the ripe young age of 75. Like, could you imagine? You're 75 years old. We're planning for retirement on that like, by that time. Like, I don't, I don't want to be moving. But God calls him at the age of 75 and says, go into the land that I'm going to show you and give to your ancestors. And so Abraham uproots. He takes his belongings and he goes where God is calling him. And this was because God had a very incredible purpose for his life. God promised to bless the entire world, every nation through Abraham's descendants, which was really sweet and powerful, except there's just one problem. He doesn't have any descendants. He and his wife, Sarah, are childless. Not only that, but as they have grown so old, at the age of 90 and 100, they are well beyond their years of being able to have a child. Or so they thought. And one day God comes to Abraham and he tells them, you know, I'm going to give you and your wife, Sarah, a child. And although both of them laugh like hysterically at this ridiculous idea, this ridiculous thing that God says, God says to them in return, is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And so, the time passes by, let's call it nine months, give or take, and just as God has promised, even in their old age, Sarah becomes pregnant and delivers a son who they name Isaac which means laughter, which is a play on what they did when God laughed at his ridiculous promise that came to be true. And now this would have been the greatest moment in Abraham and Sarah's entire life. God has done a miracle. Like, could you just imagine their excitement? 
And in this culture and in this time in which they lived, this was even more crucial to have children, right? They lived in, in a time where the society was all about farming and agriculture. So there was strength in numbers, right? If any of you grew up in a farm, uh, or even if you didn't, like you would know that, that the more people there are, the more work that can be done. And so this would be absolutely pivotal to have a prosperous and successful family. You could not do that without children. Also, without children of their own, they would struggle to have anyone to care for them in their old age, right? I mean, maybe I'm not the only one here with, who, with a parent who has said, you know, when I'm old and gray, I'm going to move in with you and it's going to be great. I'm like, yo, easy, let's take our time. There are nursing homes, retirement homes, we can figure that out. Um, that wasn't the case. Hey, hey, I love my parents, don't, don't worry. But uh, you know, if they're asking you this too, and you're like, you're like, oh, we got some things to figure out. We might not even live in the same state. Who could say uh, where God leads? But this would not be something for Sarah and Abraham, right? There would be no else to go. There would be no one to take care of them. But having a child would allow them to be cared for even in their final years. And it would also give someone to pass along their estate and their possessions and inheritance too. So this was a life-changing moment for them. God had promised that, that through their offspring would be, uh, that though their offspring would be as numerous as the dust on the earth, and he would make them fruitful, and that every one of them, um, all nations of the earth would come through them and be blessed by them. This was the next step in seeing the promises of God in motion. This was the best gift that they could have ever asked for. And as sweet and as wonderful as all of this was, there would still be one crucial truth that Abraham would need to know. And this one crucial truth is the same that I and many of you maybe have learned when it comes to Christmas or something else. But that truth is that as great as the gifts may be, the giver is greater than the gifts. Or to put it in another way, the promises of God are good and great, but God himself is greater and better. The promises of God are good and great, but God himself is greater and better. And what I mean by that is that the promises and the plans of God can only be good because he himself is good, right? Sometimes we get that backwards and we think that God is good because his actions and his promises are good, but actually those things are only good because he is good first and these things flow from who he is. Are you with me? Checks out? Cool, got some head nods. So God gives good gifts to us because he is good. And we must cherish the giver more than the gifts. So let's take a look at how this truth is worked out in the passage tonight. Turn with me if you have your Bibles with you or on your phone too, um, to Genesis chapter 22. We'll be starting in verse 1. Give you a second to turn there. Cool. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Whew. We're only two verses in, and that's a lot to unpack right there. So let's, uh, let's, give, it a, let's give it a go. All right, so just a couple things that I want to point out there from the beginning. 
the author lets us know that this is a test. That what is about to happen is a test from God. Since this was an event that was written in the past, um, the author and we are able to look back to see how this was a test and that there was something important that God needed to teach Abraham. Well, it's important to lay out the beginning because Abraham did not have this luxury of knowing this. This happened to him in real time. So as we continue to look at this passage, I encourage you to try to put yourself in Abraham's position. Put yourself into his shoes. God has brought him the greatest longing of his heart, a child, a son, and several years has passed as Isaac is more likely a young teenager here. Um, but now God is calling Abraham to lay down the greatest gift, his son Isaac, as a sacrifice to God. You know, it goes without saying that Abraham would have been utterly distraught at the idea of losing his beloved son. But even if that, um, even in that, the command to sacrifice his son would not have been as shocking to Abraham in his time as it would be to us today. And let me explain, because in the Canaanite worldview, which was the worldview of Abraham's day, they believed in many gods and goddesses, right? And in this worldview of Abraham's day, it was common for people to offer sacrifices to these gods and goddesses, especially to the goddess of fertility. Um, and so some of the times the things that they would, would sacrifice to, to that god, lower G god, would be um, animals, would be grain, but would also be children, which is really sad. But let me just say at the beginning that the Bible does not condone child sacrifice. So in case you're wondering, Scripture is pretty clear in other places as well that our God does not support this. But this is going to be one of the many occasions in Scripture where God takes an existing worldview at the time and He shows that He is different. That although all the other nations and tribes of people who do not know our God are sacrificing children and other things, God's going to take that worldview and that idea and flip it upside down and show how he is different. And so this is an example of where he takes something common in their culture and he brings redemption and a new way of thinking. And now once again, this is something that we can look back on with the knowledge that we have when we have the rest of God's story recorded in his heart as it's revealed to us in scripture. And we praise God for that. But we can look back on this, on this passage with confidence knowing that God would not actually condone child sacrifice. We can look back knowing that all along this was going to be a test as God was doing something special. But once again, Abraham would not have known that at this time, right? Put yourself in his position. This is still very on into the early uh, redemption story of God, and he would not have known what we know today. But because it would have been culturally logical and not an unfamiliar idea to Abraham, he decides he's going to go through with this. But perhaps the most confusing part to him would be figuring out how God would keep his promise to him, right? Because God had promised to Abraham to bless all of the nations, to bless all the world through his son Isaac. And so logically, Abraham must be thinking to himself, how is this going to happen if I sacrifice my son Isaac, right? This would be the most confusing part to him. But we're gonna continue on in verse three and see what happens here. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. 
On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I come, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So something important to know from this passage is it tells us the mountain uh, was three days journey away, right? That's three entire days that Abraham had to wrestle with the haunting reality of what was going to take place. You know, for three days, he must wonder in confusion about how God would, would keep true to his covenant promises without Isaac being in the picture. What God had asked Abraham to do wasn't just going to be a, a knee-jerk reaction or like ripping a Band-Aid and just getting this thing done with really fast. Abraham had three entire days to process what was going to happen. Three days to consider running away and turning around. But this time, however, allows Abraham not just to react to what God has asked him to do, but to come to a decision and a commitment to obedience. Because the obedience that God is looking for isn't just made in quick reactions or sudden moments, but it's made thoughtfully, willingly, and humbly. And another interesting thing to note is what Abraham says to the servants and his son. Did you notice what he said? As he and Isaac prepare to climb the mountain, he tells the servants, we will worship and we will come back to you. Interesting, right? And I think it's interesting because there are a couple different ways that we can interpret this. Perhaps Abraham was just in sorrow of what was going to happen. And he was in denial and couldn't bring himself to believe that what was going to happen with the sacrifice of his son. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to admit that. Maybe he was lying to the servants or it was just wishful thinking. Or perhaps the better interpretation of this statement would be that Abraham had reasoned somehow that God would make a way. That God would make a way even when it seemed that there may not be a way. That God would be faithful to his covenant promise. So, as they begin to climb this mountain, continuing in the story, Isaac realizes they have everything needed for the sacrifice, right? They've got the wood, check. Isaac's carrying that. They've got the fire, check. Abraham's carrying that because he's old and not as strong as Isaac. Okay, makes sense. Fire is usually easier to carry than wood. Um, they've got the knife. You know, they've got everything to get this thing done except for one thing. And, Abraham looks to his, or, and Isaac looks to Abraham and says, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's the obvious question, right? And Abraham looks to him and says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Once again, Abraham's response can be viewed in a couple different ways. It can be viewed as Abraham lying and trying to hide from Isaac the fact that he will soon be sacrificed. It can be viewed as nothing more than just wishful thinking that he's in denial about what is going to happen. Or, it can be viewed as a statement of strong faith and trust in God. And honestly, this is the best interpretation that I believe we have behind what Abraham said in both of these situations. That both of these statements come from a man whose faith is in a God who provides. It doesn't mean that it wasn't going to be difficult, but it meant that he chose faith in a difficult time. Because God had done some incredible things in Abraham's life up to this point, including giving him a son at the age of 100 where it seemed impossible to do so. And not only did God give him a son, but as I mentioned earlier in Genesis 17, God promised to establish his covenant through Isaac. 
And since Isaac was not married, didn't have any children or descendants of his own at some point, Abraham knew that God was going to come through, that because God had made this promise and this wasn't going to be the end of Isaac. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 say, and this is Hebrews, one of the last books in the New Testament, as it talks about um, these notable characters all throughout Scripture who lived lives of faith in the Lord. So the author of Hebrews, looking back at this moment and seeing that Abraham was a person who lived by tremendous faith in God, says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God has said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, Abraham knew that some way, somehow, the promises of God would come to be. Whether God would provide uh, a substitutionary sacrifice in the form of an animal, or whether he would go through the sacrifice, God, uh, Abraham had reasoned that somehow God could even resurrect Isaac from the dead, if that's what it took. So what happens next? Let's continue in verse, chapter, er, in verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. All right, let's pause right there. Because there's one important detail that we have been neglecting. And that's that Abraham is not the only one here with strong faith. As I mentioned before, Isaac is most likely a teen at this point, right? And we see that as evidenced by him carrying the wood and carrying some of the heavier things up to this point. And so at some point for Isaac, it would have been clear to him that he was going to be the one sacrificed. And given that Abraham was over 100 years old at this point, it would not have been difficult for Isaac to have either overpowered him or to have simply run away. At some point, Isaac knows what is coming his way, and yet he chooses to trust his father. He willingly lays his life down. Does that remind you of anyone else? And what a beautiful parallel this is to Jesus, right? As Isaac carried the wood upon his shoulders for his own sacrifice, just as Jesus would carry his own cross to his death, just as Isaac could have run away or escaped from what was coming, so too could have Jesus. Jesus could have overpowered his captives. Uh, he could have fled from certain death. He could have made another way. But both Isaac and Jesus willingly lay their lives down as they trust their father. And God commends Abraham for not withholding from him his only son. How beautiful that God, too, did not withhold his son for us. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And John chapter 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Because God did not withhold his own son, we have salvation through Jesus. Jesus brings us the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of eternal life with him. He brings us life, he brings us joy, he brings us hope, he brings us healing. He brings us everything that is good because God did not withhold his own son. And something good will also come from Abraham not withholding his own son. Let's continue on in verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on that mountain, the Lord, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God recalls his promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Abraham's obedience here was not standing to only benefit himself. All the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring, which of course Jesus would eventually come from, right? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what is going on in this passage, that Jesus is the one through whom all the nations, through every people group, through every tribe and tongue of the world would be blessed. But what God really wanted Abraham to prove and to realize for himself is whether his trust was in the promises of God or in God himself. Did he cherish the gift of God more than God the giver? Was Abraham's trust really in God and simply not in what was promised to him? Has Abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain or simply by his love for God? You know, by giving up to God what was most precious to him, his son Isaac, Abraham shows that his faith is not merely in the promises of God, nor in all the benefits of God, though there are many. His trust and faith were placed in what was, after all, truly the most precious thing to him, his God. The questions that come with Abraham's test of faith are also ones that we must be willing to answer ourselves. Because at some point in time, if it hasn't happened already, you will probably face a test similar to Abraham's. And now it probably won't be in the same sense of figuring out whether you love your child or someone else uh, more than you love God. But the test for us seeks to discover what is the motivating factor in your relationship with God? Is it God himself or is it the benefits that he provides and the hope that he offers? Are you willing to follow God if there is nothing in it for you other than himself? Would we give God a chance if there was nothing in it for us? Would we give God our lives if he gave us nothing back in return 
other than himself. This is the test that Abraham has passed. God asks of him and asks of us no less than to be our all in all, to be our everything. We must trust in him more than we trust in his benefits or his promises. And as we get ready to move into a time of response, uh, Rachel, if you would come up and just play some music for us. I have a few questions that I want you to consider and reflect on. And the first question is this, what is the motivating factor in your relationship with God? Is your faith motivated more by who God is or what he does for you? Is it motivated by personal gain and the good gifts of God? Or is it motivated simply by your love for a God who is so good? The second question is this, is there a gift you cherish more than the giver himself? Because God is great and gracious and he loves to lavish good gifts upon us. But these gifts can't compare to the honor and the glory and the praise that belongs to him alone. As you look at your life, as you examine yourselves right now, is there a gift that you cherish more than the giver. Maybe you cherish the provision of God more than God himself. Maybe your finances are something that drive your decisions and actions more than your obedience to Jesus does. Maybe you cherish a, a certain career path or future more than the one who holds your future. Have you talked to God about your dreams and plans for your life? Have you laid them at his feet in prayer to ask if this would be his will for your life? You know, maybe there's a relationship you're holding back from him or are just simply prioritizing over your relationship with him. Maybe you find yourself valuing something good, like the gift that is the community of God more than God himself. I mean, we have an awesome community here and it's great to, to gather together as believers and God, but God wants us to know him personally too. Is there something that you're holding in God's place that should belong only to him? And once again, friend, these things are not bad. These gifts that God has to offer us are, are good because they're great gifts from a greater God. But we must remember to cherish the giver more than the gifts. He alone is worthy of all of our adoration, of all of our praise, of all of our worship, all of who we are. As we move into this time of response, I want everyone here to partner up. It could be with someone from your core group or someone that you came with here tonight. And I want you to pray through these things. We'll move in just a moment. If there's something that God is asking you to lay down or something that you need to hold onto a, a little less tightly to, I want you to share that with whoever you partner up with and take that to the God in prayer. Take that to the Lord in prayer, praying that he would have first place in our hearts, and that he would give us a greater trust in him 
and the courage to lay down anything that we may be trying to hold back or anything that we may be cherishing more than Him.